Jay, why is there a guitar on the stage? Um, that's Scott's. Uh, Scott, you want to go ahead and come up? Oh, hey. Actually, that was going to be my next question. Why is, why is Scott Koblish now on stage with the guitar? I thought he wasn't playing until tonight. Well, he is playing tonight, too. But, um, see, the thing is, I was thinking about gaps in coverage, like places where the audio format sort of has worked against us, because sometimes the information we're trying to convey, the continuity, gets so complex that it calls for some kind of, you know, additional support, like maybe visual aids or something like that. And I was thinking about ways to get around that. Okay, that, that's a good idea. What did you end up with? The Summers family tree. Oh, okay. In song form. What? Dear Mr. Sinister, my name is Alex. I've got a school project I hope you can help with. My teacher said we have to map out our families, parents and grandparents, brothers and sisters. She gave us poster boards, she gave us markers But I'm having trouble with several specifics You see, I am adopted I've got a brother, we used to have parents We don't anymore Dad's name was Christopher, mom's name was Catherine Dad's mom and dad were named Philip and Deborah That part is easy, the trouble's my Scott and he's kind of a pain but that's not the problem the problem is Maddie and Nathan and Rachel and also some time travel Maddie is Scott's ex and Nathan is their son and he grew up in the future and Scott and Jane raised, Jean raised him and Jean is another ex and Maddie's her clone but Jean's also the phoenix except so is Rachel and Rachel is Scott kids and Jean's not with Maddie and she's mother of Scotty or she will be someday. Except Scott's not her father, at least not my brother cause she was born in an alternate timeline. That said, her parentage is somewhat hazy. It involves the Phoenix and part the Genesis. Rachel cloned Nathan in case of emergency. That clone is strife, he was raised by apocalypse. Nathan's got Hope, who is also adopted. She isn't a clone, though her nest name was Spalding. His son was named Tyler, but Wolverine killed him, and then we all kind of forgot he existed. But that's Nathan Summer. Nate raised someone different. He's kind of like Rachel, but from a worse timeline. Nate is a clone or grew up in a test tube and you might have raised him, well not you exactly. And now Scott's with Emma and Ruby's their daughter, at least in one future where Scott is a cyborg. They also have kids from a different timeline, a daughter named Megan with twin baby sisters. Really? Uh, yeah, I that's married... the end. <laughs> I married Jen in an alternate future and we had a daughter. But then Kang started meddling, and our daughter's name is Katie, or Willoughby, or was, and her timeline is gone, and it's kind of an issue. And did I forget Hepzibah, which she's dad's new girlfriend, because dad's alive after all, and he's a space pirate. Speaking of space stuff, I should mention Gabriel, our younger brother, at least until I killed him. Sorry. He was born after mom died and aged artificially and he married Deathbird and then he killed dad again. And Deathbird was pregnant, the Kree got involved and now no one is certain if she's even given born yet. Oh, oh, and I should 
should tell you that I'm some sort of multiversal nexus, which complicates matters. See, there's also Scotty, my son, not my brother. Well, not mine exactly, a parallel Alex's. And that Alex married a Madeline Pryor, who in this dimension is Scotty's ex-wife, Maddie. Oh, I mean Scott, my brother, of whom there are two now. And one is 16, it's an incredibly awkward. I'm also supposed to trace my name's history, and that's also a problem, see, because there's a time loop. Time loop. Time loop. Time loop. Because once Scott went back to the 19th century into Fort a villain, or something like that, and he saved a guy who I think was your prisoner. His surname was Edge, but now he changed it to Summers, and he came back to the States, and he's my twice great granddad, which all seems a bit too complicated for one poster. Which is why I am writing, see, your machinations are largely at fault for the mess that I'm in. I used to blame Scott, but it's really not his fault. You're clearly the one who's been pulling the strings. And out of some weird obsession with all of our genetics, well, less so with mine, but it's still pretty creepy. I mean, you cloned Scott's girlfriend and kidnapped my nephew. The least you can do is help me diagram this. Yours very sincerely, Havoc. Alex Havoc Summers, I'm Scott Younger's brother, in case you'd forgotten. Dear Mr. Sinister, my name is Alex. I've got a school project I hope you can help with. Dear Mr. Sinister, my name is Alex. I've got a school project I hope you can help me with. My dear Mr. Sinister, my name is Alex. I've got a school project I hope you can help me with. Thank you. Thank you so much. That's the first time we've actually heard that That's played. Yes. That was amazing. <laughs> so thanks to Scott, thanks to T. Fugner, who, who wrote the music after I wrote the lyrics. And with that, I'm J. Rachel Edditon. <laughs> and I'm Miles Stokes. And we are here to explain the X-Men. Because it's about time someone did. Welcome to episode 134 of J. and Miles Explain the X-Men, where we walk you through the ins, the outs, and the retcons of comics' greatest superhero soap opera. So, you in the future who are listening to this, we are currently recording live from Las Vegas at Vegas Valley Comic Book Festival, which is amazing and you should have been here, but you weren't, so time travel's the only option or possibly coming next year. So, for those of you in the audience, how does it feel to be the crux point of the entire future? Like, you've got your own sort of days of future past fate of the world thing going on at this point. Don't mess it up. Nevada. Like, this is... Yeah, yeah. So, this is the part where we tell you all to vote if you haven't yet and clap for everyone who has and is going to. Yes. That's really important. Civic responsibility is great. Um, and speaking of civic responsibility and, and possible dark futures, let's go to hell. Let us indeed go to hell. So I should say, I kind of blew up my voice at heavy metal burlesque a couple nights ago. I'm going to soldier on, but if I sound like I'm squeaking like I did at my bar mitzvah, that's probably why. Aw. Wait, wait, are you going to chant the continuity too? I, I've lost all that of my That would be Hebrew, amazing if you could. That, will you do it in English? Because this is, this is the original Texas English. That's true. Um, so we, last year, um, talked about an annual we had skipped over. And we're going to do that again this year. This year we are going to talk about the absolutely amazing. This is what, uh, what year was this? This was the 1980 X-Men annual. That's back when they called them king-size annuals, like candy bars, but comic books instead. And this is Nightcrawler's Inferno, spe uh, featuring a special guest appearance by Doctor Strange and all of Dante's hell. Yes. We figured, okay, you know, Las Vegas, Sin City, Doctor Strange movie just came out. Right, you it's know, super topical. It's, it's totally timely. So, 
without further ado. So at this point, this was in 1980, so this actually takes place immediately after the Dark Phoenix saga. Like, right, it's, it's right after X-Men 138, which is the one where Cyclops leaves the team. It's basically an issue-long flashback summarizing everything from giant size on. So the team currently is the whoppingly large uh, lineup of Storm, Colossus, Wolverine, Nightcrawler, and just barely a little bit of Kitty Pride. She's sort of an X-Man at this point. She is officially a student at the school. She is not officially an X-Man, yet she becomes one in this annual. That is true. Now, uh, Jay, you mentioned that Doctor Strange is in this story, and indeed he is. And at this point, Chris Claremont, who's the sort of godfather of the X-Men, wrote X-Men for 17 years, uh, he was writing Doctor Strange at the time as well, because Claremont wrote pretty much everything Marvel at some point. Yeah, yeah. He's uh, Did he ever write Hulk? Uh, I'm... I don't know, but I'm going to say probably. But yeah, he's, he, is, he, is, he is all over, and he, he tends to cross over his properties a lot. So characters like Mystique, for example, started out in his Ms. Marvel run. And at this point, he was writing Doctor Strange, so Doctor Strange shows up and runs around with the X-Men. Um, and this is drawn by John Romita Jr. and Bob McCloud. Um, Romita is known for two very long X-Men runs. McCloud, at least in the X-Universe, is best known for having been the artist to, who, the first artist on New Mutants. Yeah, and it's interesting seeing, especially Romita at this point, because later on he's got this very, uh, very clear style, lots of lines, very blocky figures. And at this point, he's just kind of getting started doing X-Men and Marvel in general, so his art is a lot more house style. It looks a lot more like any other given Marvel artist at the time. Well, that's something you see a lot of in this era of X-Men. You see folks who are now really distinctive and who are sort of household names in comics are just getting their starts. So, I mean, there's, there's the issue that, that's Bill Sienkiewicz doing Marvel house style, which is so weird to see. Seriously, yeah, before he got all, like, sketchy and awesome and warlocky. So, uh, all of that being said, I say we dive into the story. So we open with a shocked and horrified Nightcrawler, a sort of full-page-sized splash of his face, and it turns out he is, he is not actually horrified. He is excited because the X-Men have thrown him a surprise 21st birthday party. And what a birthday party it is. I don't think I've ever had a birthday oh, party like my, this one. I don't think very many people have ever had a birthday party like this one. This is... Um, so as far as I can tell, the X-Men don't actually know how to do birthday parties, so they've just thrown together bits of festivity from other holidays. So they've got, like, this table set with what appears to be a full Thanksgiving dinner, including a turkey, and a wedding cake. They're just going to celebrate all the things. They figure, all right, Phoenix just died, Cyclops just quit, we need a happy day. What things are happy? I don't know, we're X-Men, we don't really know about happy things, but maybe this? Eh? Um, the, the gifts are likewise pretty eclectic. Um, Nightcrawler gets a, the most hideous, uh, shirt-tie combo I have ever seen in my life. I mean, I, I'd wear it. You would. You'd rock it pretty well, but it's, it, it looks like a test for colorblindness. <laughs> um, and, oh, what else does he get? He gets binoculars, he gets barbells, he gets a perfect duplicate of Logan's white cowboy hat, and he also gets, and this is my favorite, like an 11 by 17 framed portrait of Wolverine. And Wolverine looks super proud as Kurt is holding this. Like, yeah, that's right. You see that face? I assume that this is Wolverine who sat down and went, okay, so what do I know that Kurt likes? He's kind of private. Well, I know he likes me. (laughs) That's it. I'm I'm going to run with it. Um, He's also eating a giant, giant, like, Renfair turkey leg, but it's huge. It's way bigger than the actual turkey on the table. It's like the size of his forearm. So that begs the question, did he bring that himself? Did he, like, show up with his gifts for Kurt? And all right, now this, this is for Logan. (laughs) I'd like to think so. So yeah, the X-Men are the worst at birthday parties, um, which I love. That makes me really happy. And, now, there and is, there's one final present. Right, and this is a mysterious black box. Oh my God. And so Kurt opens it, but not before the wonderful quote, it looks as sinister as it is stylish, a package after my own heart. Oh my God. Sinister as he is stylish would be a great epitaph. 
It, it totally would. And in fact, it might need to be because when he opens it, there's a crystal figurine of Kurt himself. And it's really pretty, and then explodes and blows his face up, and he falls the hell over. In fact, he falls over dead. Right. Xavier so, and Storm rush him to the infirmary, and they're, they're trying to resuscitate him, and they can't. Although... They're reluctant to admit that he's actually dead, which is kind of great. Right. Like, the way Xavier phrases it is, he is no longer alive. Which is really, like, that's just awkward. I don't know. Xavier runs off to make some phone calls, and we find out shortly to whom one of those calls has been when a mysterious stranger shows up at the X-Mansion. Yeah, Kitty Pride opens the door to find a handsome, mustachioed, suit-clad gentleman who says, Hey, Xavier called me. I'm expected. And as he comes in, sprouts an amazing set of blue pajamas and a giant red pointy cowled cape, and it's Doctor Strange. I love that guy. I love that he... Changes just immediately when he gets inside. Well, like, you know, it's that like, the suit is is a an illusion that's just for the sake of formality and a low profile. And damn it, if he can wear a pronged collar, he's gonna wear a pronged collar. I, I kind of figured it was like in Japan, where it's impolite to wear your shoes into a building, so you take them off immediately. I think it's a similar kind of custom for Doctor Strange himself. I see. You know, I, I'm gonna start doing that. I just need to learn the spells to transform into that outfit. Um, but yes, he uh, comes in and immediately checks out the lifeless body of Kurt Wagner, Nightcrawler. And interestingly, first confirms, hey, I thought this dude was a demon. In fact, he's totally human. Because this was early on in the X-Men's history when the nature of Kurt hadn't really been revealed. In fact, this annual is where that sort of starts. Um, actually, Kurt isn't half demon. Um, his father is part of a race of proto-mutants who were perceived as demons by early humans. That certainly is a storyline that we're going to have to cover someday, isn't it? Yeah, but, but my point is that Strange is not actually wrong here. And so uh, no sooner uh, does he start examining Kurt, he realizes two things. One, Kurt's not dead exactly, but his soul has been stolen. He's just mostly dead. Right. And uh, two, as he exclaims, by the hoary hosts of Hogoth, which is my favorite Dr. Strange exclamation, they're not alone because there is a demonic presence, you know, present. So there, what, what there is is a floating green head with great curly horns that identifies itself as belonging to someone named Margali of the Winding Road. So later on, the comics will change that to Margali of the Winding Way, which is a superior phrase because it's alliterative, and alliteration is always better if you can do it. And Margali, the floating head, immediately attacks the X-Men with mystic tentacles. As one does. Which, which grab them and basically teleport them away. Um, Kitty phases in to try to see what's up, but everyone's gone. She's barely able to pull Xavier out in time. They're stuck behind, and the X-Men and Doctor Strange, meanwhile, come to a giant and forbidding gate. Okay, so I don't, we don't have a gate at our house, but if we ever do, I want this one. It's like this giant stone face with horns on top and big teeth around it and angry eyes. And it is inscribed with the possibly recognizable quote, at least to those of the X-Men who took, um, you know, epic mode in li literature classes in college, um, abandon every hope ye that enter. This is so, the gate of hell from Dante's Inferno. And Doctor Strange is no dummy. He took AP Lit. So he's like, yeah, this is straight up Dante's Inferno down to every single little detail. Thankfully, because I'm a guest star in this story, I'm going to be your walking Wikipedia for the rest of the issue and so, tell you all the so things. So we've got Doctor Strange as Virgil. Ah, uh, right, right. Most of the X-Men as Dante. And there are a couple of exceptions. Folks who are going to get more trapped in there. But Strange knows, because he's playing Virgil here, who's Dante's guide in the Inferno, that um, they're going to have to get all the way to the bottom to leave, which means we get a full-scale tour of hell. Now, Strange notices, though, that there is something off. He's Doctor Strange. He's been to hell before. And it didn't look like this. 
Right, you know, but he's like, all right, I mean, the devil's the prince of lies, so if hell's going to look different each time, I mean, okay, that's, like, thematically consistent. I, I can handle that, I guess. But what he cannot handle is not making dramatic proclamations for more than five seconds. He's Doctor Strange. I so, mean, it's his job. Brace yourselves, X-Men. Nothing in your experience can compare to what you are about to face. To survive, much less triumph, you will need all your strength, your courage, your humanity. I mean, that's cool, dude, and it's not that we don't appreciate the warning, but you do know we did, like, fight leprechauns, right? Leprechauns were how we first found out that Wolverine's name was Logan. That's a flash fact, except the Marvel kind, not the DC kind. I mean, the X-Men have been around the block, uh, not technically to hell. So they go through the, the sort of standard standard rings. They, they cross Akron with, with a, a fire-eyed boatman. Hey, it's Charon. I love that guy. And they head to a big fancy... He takes, he takes them across the River Styx. He takes them to a big fancy castle um, that actually... it looks The architecture is actually very New Vegas. It kind of is, yeah. It's got this great big neon sign that says Minos, or possibly Minos. I'm not sure how you pronounce That's it. Minos. Minos, that guy. Yeah, and gar- Minos is the guardian of the gate of hell. Um, he is normally... Very demonic looking. He's got a big scaly tail. In the Inferno, he's the one who figures out which circle of hell you're supposed to go into. He wraps his tail around you that many times, and you get sent down there. I think that's actually only for the um, for the the deliberate um, the the sins of, of commission. I think the sins of omission get sort of automatically sorted. I think so. But yeah, yeah he's basically Hell's sorting hat. Now he looks <laughs> Hell sorting hat. Hell sorting hat. <laughs> you go to Gryffindor. You go to the Tempest. You go to Ravenclaw. You get chewed on by Satan for all eternity. Exactly. Yeah. Um, now, this is a very different portrayal. And of... you get a car. <laughs> yeah. Bees! That's a deep cut. No. Uh, <laughs> but this is a very different version of Minos. Instead of being a big leathery demon, he is a fancy man in a tuxedo who, well, he's, in fact, he's the MC from Cabaret. He is. Like, he's, he's explicitly, and in fact, he, he welcomes with them with, you know, Vilcom and Bienvenue, welcome. Okay, so this is a weird thing because, all right, so this is a story about Nightcrawler, and we have the MC from Cabaret replacing a demonic character. Now, Alan Cumming played the MC in a version of Cabaret and also played Nightcrawler in the X-Men movies, so it's all connected. It's just a great big spiral. Conspiracies. This is, this is I'm, we, we're going to have to make a, a Nightcrawler Minos board next to the, the Cyclops Racer X board. Exactly. It's all connected. We figured this out. And so uh, Minos, you know, is all creepy, and he flirts with both Storm and Kurt, and Storm has some thought about how he's repulsive, and yet I'm somehow drawn to him because this is a Chris Claremont comic, and that sort of thing happens a lot. And for those of you who, you know, snuck your flasks into the auditorium to play the discreet drinking game, it's a villain with a thing for Storm. Take a drink. That's right. Um, so after this creepy flirtation is done, since Kurt is the one who's been pulled into hell, it's slowly becoming clear, uh, Minos, with his hidden tail, which is behind his tuxedo-clad form, uh, grabs Nightcrawler and just flings him really far up into the sky. Aurora flies after, and they head first through the Tempest. This is where the lovers usually are. They are basically grasping onto and attached to each other for all eternity, and they're, they're wind-tossed in a hurricane and beset by harpies and, and all sorts of other unpleasant things. Do they actually go? They don't go through limbo, do they? Uh, no, I don't, I don't think they do. I think they sort of fall asleep through right, that part. All right, so we, we skip the righteous unbaptized. That's fine. But one thing I really love about this scene is, okay, so like Kurt got thrown into the air. Aurora finds, uh, grabs him and is flying around. They're flying around in these gale force hurricane winds, having a fight with harpies, like punching them in the sky. And the entire time, Storm is holding Nightcrawler by his tail. Like, his tail is super attached to his butt. I'm very impressed with that butt attachment. Yeah, that's, I mean, we know he swings around on it, so it's presumably he's worked on, on developing the muscles and joint stability and, and stuff. But yeah, no, that, that's, 
Yeah, that is really impressive. Mm-hmm. Well, well done, Nightcrawler. Yes, well done indeed. And so, um, yeah, they do fight the harpies off, and Storm's like, okay, Nightcrawler can't teleport because we're in a hurricane. He can't see where he's going. I'm going to use my cyclone powers to make a hole in the hurricane so he can see the castle and teleport back there, which I got to say is an awesome use of her powers. Meta well weather. Done. So he's, and she says she's going to follow him, but she doesn't. He teleports back, and Storm is gone. Yes, she gets knocked down by harpies down into hell itself. And Minos explains when, when Nightcrawler asks where she is, it's like, well, this is hell. She's in the most appropriate circle for whatever her relevant sins are. You know, that, that, that's how we work. Right. So the X-Men are like, all right, Minos, you're a total jerk, but you're a great big demon with a surprisingly gigantic tail. So no, Wolverine... It's about a human-sized demon. It's just the tail that's really, really, really Well, it's, it's disproportionate, yeah. Yeah, it's, it's, he, I, I imagine he has a lot of trouble walking. I think that's why he's in that chair most of the time. Yeah. Uh, and so the X-Men are like, all right, let's choose our battles. We're going to go find our missing friend Storm, and we will see you hopefully never because you're a jerk even if you are from Cabaret. And so they head off into hell he's itself. He's kind of a jerk in Cabaret, too. Oh, well, you know, double it's jerk. It's at least then. kind of creepy. But um, I want to I pause for a second and actually talk about a conversation that happens here because Nightcrawler is of this team of X-Men, I believe the only practicing Christian, and specifically the only practicing Catholic. At this um, point, yeah, although they haven't revealed yeah. Catholicism yet. In fact, uh, just his Christianity. And that may even come up for right. the first time in this issue, if I recall correctly. Well, he mentions specifically, you know, they're, they're arguing with him about the concept of hell, and he, he pulls out the tautology of, well, if people are in here, the fact that they're here proves that they belong here. Um, and, and, you know, Wolverine immediately pulls up, yeah, the, yeah, yeah, Storm too, huh? So they go off to, they go off to rescue Storm and Nightcrawler has a, has a long, long think about, about his reasoning in that one. And they're trying to figure out where she might be and they, they head down through, through more circles. There's the third circle and that is, that is the gluttons, um, they run into run to, into um, Cerberus here. This I actually really like this part. Dog guardian of hell. Right, just because it's got the Wolverine line. Here's where you learn some manners, Bowser. I don't. I really miss 1980 era Wolverine. He was just so gloriously cheesy before he got the incredibly complicated backstory and everything. And they work their way through the fourth circle for the avaricious, and the fifth, the wrathful, to the walls of the city of Dis. So Dis is basically the midpoint in in hell in in the inferno, and um, it's. It's a, it's a big fancy city. The dams don't actually live there. That's pretty much where the demons hang out. And it's got gates that are um, supposed to be only openable, what is it, by, by the divine messenger? Uh, the heavenly messenger is his name in right. the Inferno. But Colossus is able to pull them down, which to Doctor Strange indicates that, yeah, this is, this is probably something a little off going on here. We also learn a little bit about maybe why they're here in the first place because the X-Men start talking about which circles of hell they might belong in. And they also ask Nightcrawler, okay, so what's the deal? Clearly you got pulled in here. What's going on? And he admits, well, I'm pretty sure it's because I killed my brother. And he doesn't really say anything more about that. Well, Margali's son. Margali's, yes. Yeah. Yeah. And so, and the X-Men are like, wait, 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 wait. We don't believe you would just kill someone in cold blood. You're like the nicest X-Man. Everybody loves you. You're a great guy. And Nightcrawler basically says, look, I made a promise. I did what I did. I'm not denying anything. No regrets. Peace out. Right. And so they just sort of uh, keep going once Colossus pulls those gates open with a truly impressive display of art. Like there's this series of tall vertical panels that zoom in more and more on his face as he starts to catch on fire from the hellish heat. 
it's pretty awesome. Or maybe he's just that intense. That's possibly true. So, I know I set on fire when I concentrate real hard. What's on the other side of disc? Because that's when we start get to get into the, the deeper circles of hell. The, the inner circles of hell, which I feel like is, should have a Hellfire Club reference in it, but doesn't. That's true, yeah. Uh, but they are in Malabul- Malabulge, Malabulge. I, I, Malabulge. I don't speak Italian. It's- but that's where they are. Says, I, uh, I'm so sorry, Dr. Mykoff. I'm sorry. <laughs> um, and at this point, the X-Men are talking a little, more about, a little more about religion. This is where we find out definitively that Colossus is an atheist, which makes sense. He comes from the USSR in the late 70s. Uh, and I love his line here. Um, I am glad as well that I cannot cry in my armored form or my heart would crack for weeping as he looks at all of the hellacious suffering around him. I really like how dramatic Colossus is. We don't tend to bring him up as one of the characters who's, who's most showy, but he totally is. Like, he says stuff like that all the time. He talks about himself in the third person a lot. Mm-hmm. And I, I think, I'm, I'm trying to think of what, what makes it endearing when he does it and obnoxious when, like, Gambit does it. And all I can think is that he's just, he's just totally sincere about it. Right. Colossus is as earnest as he could possibly be. Like, there is no sarcasm or artifice. He's just like, I'm a great guy. I'm made of metal. I punched a tractor once. I'm going to sacrifice my life to, to solve the legacy virus. Done. That's all you need. So Doctor Strange continues his, his basically Virgil cosplay and walks them through what they're coming up on next. That's a place called Malabog, and this is, this is the circle of fraud. It's dismal, it's gray, it's populated by serpents. Um, there are a bunch of subcategories of fraud, and one of them that he mentions is um, you know, the circle occupied by thieves. And, and Wolverine remembers that Storm spent her youth as a thief on the streets of Cairo and goes, oh, okay, that's it. That's where we're going to find her. And so he runs across all sorts of pits of fire and molten gold. And again, the art in this is really stellar, even though John Romita Jr. hasn't really fully developed his permanent style yet. Like, he's clearly still got the chops. The rest of the X-Men follow, and they think they've spotted Storm in a pit full of serpents. But when she turns around, her face and body are horribly warped and malformed, and she immediately jumps at them and tries, tries to attack them. This seems mysterious until Wolverine comes up carrying a friendly-looking snake with weirdly long arms. And this great face. Like, okay, so we oh, don't yeah, have it's, visual it's great. aids here. It's making, it's making this amazing face. Um, I don't... Can I... It's, so I, it's, I think the, the face sounds probably like... No, see, I think if it's a hell snake, it's just sort of going... Oh, man. Just making a creaky door noise nonstop for eternity. So I guess the question is, like, which of those noises would be more torturous to have happen forever? I, I don't know. You, you be the judge. But regardless, he's cradling this snake like a baby, which is it's, it's actually really uh, endearing, I think. It's, it's, snakes are great. Snakes are our noodle friends. Um, but this snake, it turns out, is the real storm, which Wolverine was able to identify by... Sniffing it. He sniffed all the snakes. Because he's got an, an amazing sense of smell. And God. that's just what he does. Remember that time we went to hell and I sniffed all the snakes? Yes, Wolverine? Logan, you've told us four times already today. I mean, there were so many of them. I know, they Logan. They smelled really bad. Well, some of, them. some of them were, like, else, weirdly fruit-scented, and I still don't know what's up with that. Like, do you think they, like, wear perfume? Do they, do they scent them? Is that a thing? Is that, like, I've never thing? thought Maybe about it, Logan. Maybe they steal the perfume. <laughs> so I don't know anyway. why my Logan is basically Jubilee, but, um... <laughs> Regardless, Doctor Strange, using, like, his mystical might, is able to, you know, switch him. And so Storm no, is back. No, no, he is not. Um, the deal with, with the snakes is that the snakes oh, right. bite the people and switch bodies with them. It's like and a so Storm just thing. has to bite her old body and then she can, she can switch back. Yeah, so if you ever want to switch bodies with someone, just try biting them and it's, well, pro- with it's probably going to work. If you want to switch bodies with a snake, yes. Or if you are a snake, I think you might have to be a snake for this to work. It's, it's kind of complicated. It's a very specific bit of advice, but we stand by it nonetheless. If a snake ever switches bodies with you, all you have to do is find it and bite it. 
Right. This is why you come to this podcast, to learn these life lessons. Um, yeah, it's what, what, that. Um, don't take our advice about bears and never masturbate with a cactus. That's how you get eye killers. That's right. It's, it, there's a lot to learn. That's a thing. So anyway, everyone's okay now. All those storms still pretty traumatized from having been an evil snake in hell for a little bit. But they continue on to uh, Cochitis, which is the final circle, that of the treacherous. Dr. Strange is, of course, narrating Wikipedia style, like, constantly in the background about all this stuff. I am really surprised, strange being strange, that they didn't actually go the Dante route and have... So, so one of the great things about the Inferno, one of my favorite things about it, is that Dante, it's basically self-insertion fan fiction. Yeah. Um, so Dante populates, like, Limbo with, you know, Homer, and that's where Virgil lives, and who else is there? It's like... A, a famous people, you famous, know. Basically great writers and poets who are like, dude... Dante, it's too bad that you're, you know, a believer. You could be down here with us where you belong in, with all of the greatest writers ever. And, like, he puts all his political enemies in different circles of hell and stuff. <laughs> Dante um, was so petty. And it's so easy to imagine Doctor Strange doing that, especially with Limbo. Oh, right, just, like, meeting the greatest wizards of all time. Yeah, and they're being, like, oh, yeah, yeah Steve. Yeah, just high-fiving. Yeah, Steve. Yeah. Bro, bro. But um, anyway. Le- and, and for some reason, they also know Logan's name. Oh, right, them and Leprechauns. Them and the Leprechauns. Yeah. So they head into Cochitis, and they haven't gone very far before Kurt just disappears, and suddenly he's trapped under ice, like in that one Metallica song, all like twisted up and not looking very comfortable because he's trapped under ice. Like that one Metallica song, as if there isn't an X-Men character who regularly taps, traps people in ice. It, it's true. They don't really think much about the consequences of when ice people, when Iceman encases people in ice. Well, like, they do when Kurt's encased in ice. They're like, he can't breathe. He's going to freeze. He's going to suffocate. It's like, how many people has Bobby just murdered at this point? Right? It's just never addressed. It's, yeah, you can't, that, that, encasing people in ice kills them. Pretty, pretty soundly. But they're able to get Kurt out. They're able to smash through the ice. Specifically, Colossus is able to channel his powers of being super dramatic to say, let me try, my friends. If the strength, the power of Colossus means anything, if justice and honor and friendship mean anything, then Nightcrawler will be free! And he punches. Isn't that basically what he said the one time he moved that tree? Uh, yes, it's true. He did. Yeah. Uh, he's just, he's real enthusiastic. I can get behind that. He is, yeah. And so they do get Nightcrawler out. Um, he's, he's surprisingly not dead. When suddenly, who is to show up but the devil himself in his Dante's Inferno form, which is a big three-headed monster. But he's got really goofy faces. No, he's got three faces, not three heads. Right, yes. He's sort of got three heads in this. Um, so Satan's deal in the Inferno is that he's got, he's, he's in the center of hell, which is frozen, which is icy, and he's got the three greatest traitors of all time, each in one of his mouths, and he's just gnawing on them for eternity like chew toys. He's got Brutus Cassius and, Judi- and Judas Iscariot. He doesn't have them in this. Okay, no, I have a theory. Uh-huh. So he does, but he wants to talk, and you can't talk with your mouthful very easily. So he's, got, he's like a squirrel. He's got cheek pouches, and he's put the sinners in his cheek pouches. Okay, so he's just sort of saving them for later? Exactly, yeah. He does have big handfuls of, of people, or possibly action figures, and it's, it's unclear. Um... And so Stra- Dr. Strange, Strange Strange basically basically pulls the um the Walter Mondale thing and is like, I know Satan. I was friends with Satan, and you, sir, you are no Satan. And he casts a sort of dispelling spell by making his usual gesture, which looks like the sign of the devil, so it's kind of ironic, I guess. Uh, and sure enough, this big three-faced monster turns into that green lady with the horns from before, Margali. And so she's hanging out, the X-Men are confused. But surprisingly, she is confused by their presence. Like, they figure, well, lady, you pulled us in here, and you don't know why we're here? What's going on? Well, actually, um, then someone who basically looks like 
I dream of genie, but more aerobicsy yep. pops into existence. This is Nightcrawler's adopted sister, um, Jermaine Zardos. Yeah, and she um, she brought the X Men um, down. She wanted to make it seem like it had been Margali, but basically in hopes that they could talk Margali out of her complicated revenge plot against Kurt. Right, because we heard earlier that Nightcrawler had killed her son, his brother, and so it makes sense she would be mad at him. We still don't have any details, though. Um, finally, the, the X Men and Strange fight Margali. Basically, to a draw, uh, Strange, Strange, he and he, or she and Strange have have a terrific magic duel. It looks um, really awesome. Yeah, Ramita and McLeod kind of knock that one out of the park. Oh yeah. Um, and finally, Kurt surrenders. He says, "You know, this is this is I don't I don't want you guys fighting on my account." And Strange says, "Okay, well, Margali, do you want vengeance or justice?" She says, "Justice," and he says, "Well, I've got the Eye of Agamotto, which is basically a really good uh, video projector, mm-hmm. and it, it does some other stuff too. But that's really the only relevant thing." Uh, they, they use it to basically play back the sequence of, of events leading up to Stefan uh, Sardos's death. Okay, and this part is awesome. Like, we know we're going to get a revelation, but I don't think anyone was expecting this. So, Nightcrawler was found as a baby by the Zardoses, who it's implied were Romani, and he got really close to Jermaine and Stefan. Important detail. They claim here that he was found beside his dying mother, a, something that will be later retconned out of his origin when his mother turns out to be Mystique. Right. And so we see in their past that he and Stefan become blood brothers by cutting their hands and mixing their blood, which I see that in movies a lot. Do people do? I never did that. I don't know. Maybe I, I missed out on an important part of childhood. No but, comment. But one of the things that happens is that Stefan tells him in this flashback, I fear the dark side of my soul. Swear to me, Kurt. If I ever turn evil, if I ever take an innocent life, that you will kill me. That, that seems like a really weird thing to ask of someone. Obviously, we went to different slumber parties in high school. Okay, swear to me, Jay, if I ever turn evil... Wait, no. Um, I mean, Miles. Well. Miles. And it turns First of all, out, if either of us turns evil, it's going to be me. We know this. That's probably, that's probably yeah. true. You're, you're, way too, you're, you're lawful good, man. Yeah. But regardless, uh, that does in fact happen as the flashback continues because Stefan, true to his premonition, turns evil and kills a bunch of people. Nightcrawler tries to stop him and accidentally breaks his neck in the fight, as happens, only to be confronted by an angry mob. So Nightcrawler is about to go explain to Margali what happened and be like, I'm so sorry, but like Blood Brothers and Plot and also he just murdered a bunch of kids. Stefan has just murdered a bunch of kids. The local townspeople looking for a culprit, see Kurt, who looks demonic, and set upon him. And that is the origin story of the angry mob that's chasing him in giant size X-Men number one. Because you demanded it, this is in fact the background story of an angry mob that appeared in two panels. Because this is what Chris Claremont does. Why would you possibly leave anything simple when you could make it way more complicated and involve Dante's Inferno and an aerobics genie and a green lady and all sorts of great stuff? Okay, okay, let's be fair. We currently have an X-Men movie franchise directed by a dude who is determined to tell the origin story of every single character's hair. That's a good point, actually. That's a really good point. Yeah, yeah. You can't just have a white streak. No, There are reasons. Come on. But regardless, now that Margali has seen the truth, that, okay, yeah, technically Kurt killed Stefan, but, like, you know, he wasn't a jerk about it, so she's like, oh, well, um, sorry, dude. Sorry I sent you to fake hell. What she says is, to punish you, to make you suffer as I had suffered, I created a facsimile of Dante's hell to be your eternal prison. What a waste. 
Okay, I mean, to be fair, that is an immensely elaborate plan. Because the thing is, she doesn't just create, like, the part of hell that Kurt would be in Yeah, she could have just, just done, like, the one thing and had, like, a door to it that looked fancy. But no, she made all of hell, so when the X-Men end up in the wrong place, like, it's all there. How long did she spend on this she thing? She made all of hell, and she gave it, like, hell properties. It sorts people appropriately because Storm wasn't supposed to be in it, but she got sent to the correct circle and everything. I mean, this is, like, this is some arcade-level bullshit villainy. I think it kind of is, but you know what? I don't think it's a waste. Like, she could do stuff with this. Not all is lost. She doesn't need to just throw it away, right? Yeah, I mean, with a little bit of touch-up, maybe a bit of paint, she can totally flip this hell. Yes. Okay, so reality TV show. Someone make it happen. Um, so they all teleport back to the ex-mansion, and Kurt asks his adoptive sister, Jermaine, uh, how she found him. Like, how did she know that he was there and that Margali was going to send him to fake hell? Well, says Jermaine... You know that hot stewardess you hooked up with a few, a few issues ago who you've been dating? You mean Amanda Sefton from Uncanny X-Men number 98, who later appeared in two separate arcade adventures? Ta-da! It turns out it's her! She and was... Kurt, confronted with the news that he has been dating his adopted sister, grins and goes, Oh boy! I mean, you know, it's fine. It's, it's, it's adoptive. It's, that that it's, makes it okay. Um... Kurt says it's okay. That's a valid facial expression nonetheless. But regardless, they keep it's dating not, for a long time. Okay. So, you know, there you go. Yeah. But yeah. Uh, he's really uh, happy about this. Everybody's overjoyed. They have a big party. Even comforting Kitty Pride, who's feeling sort of, you know, uh, left out because she didn't get to go to hell and she's not fully an X-Man yet. And Wolverine, in a bit of foreshadowing for being nice to teenage girls, is actually the one who says, Hey, Pumpkin, what are you doing over there with Chuck when you should be over here with us? You're an X-Man, ain't ya? Kitty is, is euphoric. She heads over and, and, and will subsequently get in huge fights with Professor Xavier when he tries to demote her to the New Mutants. Yeah, and so everybody hugs. Everything is great. It's, it's pretty good. It's, it's, Ramita's no John Bogdanov when it comes to drawing hugs. Yes, John Bogdanov draws the best hugs in comics. That's the greatest hugs in comics, it's true. And so as all the X-Men are happy, of course, the, uh, the grown-ups in the corner have to comment on it. As Strange says... Your students have a right to celebrate, Charles, in Margali's facsimile hell. Margali's facsimile hell sounds like it should be a roadside attraction. It kind of does. In Margali's facsimile hell, they faced the ultimate in despair and emerged triumphant. They are heroes. They, my dear Stephen, are the X-Men. And so that is this lovely story, but no comic would be complete without a letter column. Now, remember we mentioned this came out right after the Dark Phoenix saga? And that means we've got the letters in response to X-Men 137. So the lag from letter columns to issues is almost always about two months. Right. Um, so I guess in this case, about a month, because this was coming out um, semi, semi-monthly at this mm-hmm. point. And so, you know, people just found out that Jean Grey died. I mean, later on, they would find out it was way more complicated than that, but this wasn't later on. So my favorite letter... So I'm, I'm going to say really quickly. So for those of you who think that, that uncivil diatribes to creators started with the internet, oh, we'd no. like to share a few, a few uh, reader responses to the death of Jean Grey in, in 1979, 1980. Now, there were some really nice letters, but they're less funny, so we're not going to pay attention to those. From David Champagne from Rhode Island. Mr. Claremont, you stink, murderer. That's the entire letter. Uh, Lucius Dario, who um, includes no address, uh, pens a long and uh, purple missive that ends with... Goodbye, sirs. Our business is concluded. 
So, so yes, X-Men fans have always been X-Men fans and we are them and we love them and we love you and it's all wonderful. And so yeah, that is this issue and we have a little bit of time for uh, questions if anybody has any about X-Men in general or the story or whatever. I yeah. believe we have a microphone available over here. So if you have a question, um, raise your hand or call out or uh, don't throw a chair. But you we can do other qualify. things. We uh, should qualify. We do Q&A on the podcast. We get those questions in advance and we do research. We are... We know we have a huge, huge amount of off-the-cuff X-Men knowledge, but it's not comprehensive. We are mostly research monsters. So if you have a continuity question that we're not able to answer, we will research it. We'll put the answer up on the website in the next week. Yes. So uh, any questions about any aspect of X-Men at all? Uh, Claremont did two issues of Hulk in one annual. Okay. Ah, According to Mr. Internet. (laughs) Thank you. Thank you. (laughs) Did you look that up or did you just know that? Okay. Excellent. All right. That's sort of a relief. <laughs> so uh, last episode, uh, last week's episode from this, you guys mentioned um, comparing uh, the Odin sleep to that board game, Don't Wake Daddy. <laughs> yes. yes. What overly complicated board game would you associate with an X-Men character? Oh, oh that's really good. Okay. Um, in terms of continuity, I would probably associate Strife with Mousetrap. Where you have to pull the Rube Goldberg, Goldberg device. Like, you know, you have to drop the cloning material into the vat, which, like, knocks the severed head of Apocalypse's old body into the Ascani priestess's sewers, and at that point... I feel like Mr. Sinister would get pretty into Mr. Potato Head. <laughs> Except he would insist on doing it all in, like, a cloning vat. He wouldn't let himself touch it at all. No, no, he'd just, he'd just, he'd just, he'd just use real people's facial features. <laughs> That's horrifying and also probably accurate. Okay, so there you go. <laughs> um, X-Men 92, or the, the 90s X-Men kind of like really happened when I got into X-Men. So from a nostalgia standpoint, that's what I grew up and loved. And it's easy for me to justify that because that the entire line was kind of rebooted and they brought everybody back together. Um, but I was wondering, for people who really love, like, the Australia Outpost X-Men, it's so, for somebody who came out right after that, it, I find it so weird and so un-X-Men-like that I was wondering what people who really love that period of X-Men and grew up with that, like, what they think of that and why they love it. So I want to say, first of all, this is Arvind Batista. Did you see, did any of you see the amazing Dazzler and Lila Cheney music videos? That were up online? That dude directed them. They're really good. They you should fantastic. seriously check them out. Yes. So, yeah. Hi. We are big fans of yours. You're really cool. <laughs> uh, so as for the question itself, um, do you want to start? Um, man, about sort of what to love about them. I think they're a very hard team to jump into because one of the things I love most about them is how they compare to the team preceding. What, what, because they're... they're they're the X-Men as a team taken and sort of removed from their environment, removed from their context, broken down in a lot of ways. To give a little bit of context for people not familiar with this era, this was after the X-Men were killed and secretly resurrected in Fall of the Mutants. So at this point, the world thinks they're dead and they've run off to Australia to be like secret superheroes. And they're a really strange group. They include a couple people who just joined up with the team like an issue before this happened. Um, yeah, they're a really, really unlikely group. It's, it's Storm, Wolverine, Havoc, Madeline Pryor... Um, uh, Colossus, Colossus, Rogue, Rogue. Longshot, Dazzler. I think that's right. I think that's it, yeah. yeah. Um, so they're, they're, and eventually Jubilee um, finds them. But they're, they're a really unlikely X-Men lineup. They are 
there aren't a lot of characters in that who are close to one another. Oh, Psylocke, we forgot Psylocke. Right, yes. Um, and they work best. I feel like if you want to get into that era, the thing to do is to start at or before Fall of the Mutants because that context is so critical for getting the appeal of that team. I feel like they're, they're, they're one of the few eras that I think, I think doesn't really stand alone but stands, stands much, much better for its larger context. I would agree, yeah. I mean, for me, what I like is just that it's a group of characters getting to know each other and getting to become friends, getting to the point where they are, like, playing baseball together and going out to coffee to talk about the different personalities trapped in their heads because of power transfer and that sort of thing. Like, it's just all about taking, you know, adversity, taking this horrible, dark event and a bunch of characters that don't necessarily like each other very much in most combinations and turning them into, even more than a team, a group of actual friends. And that's always been so much of what I've looked for in X-Men, personally. It's got a little bit, and I, I, I hesitate to make this comparison, because I don't think they're necessarily, if you'd like one, you'd like the other titles. Um, but they remind me a little bit of Matt Fraction's Hawkeye run, in that they're all about taking characters who are mostly known as superheroes, and stripping away a lot of those trappings that context, and writing a series that really focuses on them as people. Totally. Um, I think we have time for one or maybe two more, depending Two very short ones or one normal length yeah. one. I have a panel right after this that I'm going to have to sprint to, so we've got a hard stop. Are there any X-Men characters that you wish they would uh, kill off and not resurrect, and why? <laughs> oh, man. I mean, I got my wish on that one. <laughs> well, they, they haven't resurrected Logan. him yet. Yeah. Um, I would actually go, yeah, I would say the same thing. Uh, Logan. Logan died, and I think, I mean, I love the character, but I think it's been a good thing for the X-Universe to have him gone because he just dominated so much of it. Now we have X-23, Laura Kinney as Wolverine. We have Old Man as Logan. The best Wolverine. As the best Wolverine. Oh, my God. Is, is anyone reading all-new Wolverine? It's so, it's so good. good. It's the yeah. best X-Line book right now. It's, it's tremendous. So I really hope they don't bring him back. I know they will, but I hope they don't. Uh, beyond that, I don't know. What do you think? Man, I'm trying to think of, trying to think of who would, would add to the story to kill, like who it would be really not Madrox I want him brought back man oh poor guy Um, yeah I don't know I don't know I have trouble thinking I'm thinking two of characters who are more likely to actually get to stay dead yeah I mean no character's going to stay dead and you can always destiny stayed dead destiny did stay dead you could always find find ways to bring those characters back that are interesting I think it's more a question of like what would help the line as a whole so Wolverine being gone is good Older Cyclops being gone, that might end up being a good thing if they keep him dead. I don't know if they will. Um, I would love for older Jean Grey to stay dead because it allows the spotlight to be there for the new, younger Jean Grey. But those, Grey. Are, those aren't additional characters we'd kill. That's true. These are characters they've already killed. Yeah. That's so hard. I don't want to kill any X-Men. <laughs> but I'm going to think about that. And I mean, I, I would kill Nate Grey just for the sake of simplification, but that's more, oh, yes. that's okay. more kill a Nate logistical Gray. Kill him. thing than yes. anything else. It's just sort of about streamlining. Let's be done with X-Men. He is, he's, he's complicated yeah. continuity that doesn't need to happen. Him and Strife, just keep him dead. <laughs> Strife came back. Uh, kill him and keep him dead. That's what I say. <laughs> He can, he can, he can like go through a doorway wrong and impale himself on one of his head knives. Yeah. Uh, okay, do we have uh, one more question? I think we might have just barely time. So I believe you've answered this question before, but when you think of your favorite uh, characters, for example, me, my, one of my favorite characters is Longshot. When I think yes. of him, I think of him drawn by Arthur Adams. Or, for example, Boom Boom, when I think about her, I think about her drawn by John Bogdanoff. Mm-hmm. Who do you guys think of? when you guys think of your favorite characters as far as artists? So the problem is you just talked about two of my very favorite characters, so you, you already took those. Um, well, Stor- Storm. Storm's another of your persistent favorites. Oh, Storm. For Storm, I would say either... Um, oh, why am I blanking? Life Death. 
Barry, Barry Windsor, Windsor Smith. Smith. Yeah. I would say either Barry Windsor Smith or these days Victor Ibanez, who did the storm yeah. ongoing for the most yeah. part, does a phenomenal Aurora. Like she just looks like she looks like Aurora. I mean, she doesn't look like anybody else in comics. And her that that level of passion and emotion and intensity and regality comes through really well without taking away her humanity. So yeah, I mean, I think he's he's the most current uh, artist I would categorize as like owning a character. Warlock is now and forever in my head drawn by Bill Sienkiewicz. That's kind of a no-brainer. Um, yeah. I'm thinking of Cyclops and being really indecisive then. Um, I can, oh, God, now I'm, now I'm just, just thinking around. Oh. There are so many options. I really like the Paul and Smith Cyclops. I was, yeah, I was going to say Paul Smith, but also John Cassidy. Oh, yeah, it's a very They're different They're very take. different. Yeah, he's But they, they both work very, very well for me. Um, I like Walter Simonson, but that might just be because I like Walter Simonson and I like that run. Yeah, fair enough. So, yeah, I would say, say Paul Smith and John Cassidy for Cyclops. Mm-hmm. Hmm. The last one I would say would be Walter Simonson's Archangel. Nobody's ever going to do Archangel as well as Walter Simonson. Yeah, Nobody no, else can make no. that ridiculous costume just look so legitimately cool. <laughs> oh, uh, Gabriel Hernandez Walta um, drawing Dr. Nemesis. Ooh, yeah. Or yeah. Magneto, for that matter. Yeah, but mostly Dr. Nemesis for me. Because so there, there have been a lot Dr. of definitive Nemesis. Magneto artists. <laughs> yes. Um, so I guess uh, we are starting to run over time, so we should close out, and we should yes. say before anything else, thank you all so much for being here. It is so good to see listeners in person and meet them and get to geek out about X-Men. You guys are awesome. Yeah, Give and yourselves thank, you, a hand. thank you to Vegas Valley Comic Book Festival. Yes. Which is amazing. This is our second year here to Suzanne, who's brought us to Andy, who's been amazing, and who's, he, you've seen him, he introduced us, he's been running the mic around, to Brian, who is, is handling the actual recording, to Scott, so much, who came and yes. drove, we, we drove, we road tripped out here together yesterday, and um, who, yeah, who, who brought Dear Mr. Sinister to life, bringing <laughs> some of my weirder dreams to reality. Exactly. Um, uh, to T. Fugner, who, again, wrote the music for the song. And um, to Kyle, who's going to have to edit all of this later. Yes, indeed. Um, so. oh, once again, we said it before, but we'll say it again. Voting is awesome, and you all should yes. do it. Um, Voting is great. You have, you have power, Nevada. Wield it wisely. Yes. Uh, thank you all for coming. Uh, we're going to be a little bit outside here at the table. Jay's got a panel next. I'll be yes. uh, there for the rest of the show, though. I've got so, a panel about female villains, and you should all come to it because it's going to be great. Yes. And if you don't come to that for some reason, then come say hi to me and come say hi to both of us after. We but love we'll judge next you time. for not going to the panel. Yeah, well. Anyway, thank you all so much. You're excellent. Wonderful seeing you all. Thank you. Take care. Jay and Miles Explain the X-Men is recorded usually in Portland, Oregon, this week live from Vegas Valley Comic Book Fest. It's produced by Kyle Yount, host of the Godzilla podcast, Kaiju Cast. And new episodes of our show come out Sundays on iTunes, Stitcher, and at explainthexmen.com. Check out explainthexmen.com for all kinds of extra content, visual companions to every episode, along with interviews, fan art, recaps, reviews, and more. And I should say we are now also back on Google Play at last. We are indeed. And our show is totally listener-supported. If you'd like to help us stay on the air, including on Google Play and ad-free, Check out the Patreon link at the top of explainthexmen.com. Special thanks once again to everyone at Vegas Valley Comics Fest, everyone who came out to see the panel, and especially to our musical guest, X-Men 92 and Deadpool artist, road trip buddy, and all-around excellent human, Scott Koblish. Next week, we'll be back in the studio talking about Excalibur once again. As the cross-time caper continues. (laughs) 